Hey, Fresh Capital listeners. In this episode, we're looking at a bit more of a traditional company. We're talking about Singapore Airlines. Singapore Airlines is Singapore's flagship carrier and one of the region's largest airlines in both revenue and carrying capacity. As the COVID-19 pandemic is slowly fading from our lives, what does this mean for international travel and tourism? We break it down in this week's episode. Keep listening and enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Fresh Capital. Every week we provide a refreshingly simple way to learn about companies and investing. My name is Dan. Joining me, Albert, how are you doing? Dan, happy uh, public holiday. How are you? Happy Labor Day, that's right. A little bit sad or forlorn now that the day is coming to an end, but um, glad to have the day nonetheless. Went to the beach. Nice, nice. Good weather for it uh, today, which is uh, very good. You were playing tennis, Albert? Playing tennis, also enjoying the sun, which is nice. Um, not sure if we can easily transition that one, but I guess planes are in the sun. So this week's episode, we're, we're talking about Singapore Airlines. <laughs> that one shocked you a little bit, Albert. <laughs> yeah, not your best segue, but you know, you gave it a go. You gave it a go. Um, well, I guess neither of us were traveling on this public holiday, but uh, the airlines are hoping for more people to be traveling um, Singapore Airlines being one. This one, this episode is probably more driven by me, Albert. I know you love your tech businesses. There's obviously tech in airlines, but one of the really interesting things that I wanted to sort of unpack is, well, what's been happening post-COVID with airlines, with travel, and then having that grounding as we, you know, assess other companies, Albert, in the future as to, you know, how that might be affecting those companies and what's just more generally happening in the economy. So Singapore Airlines, a quick sort of over, overview is, is Singapore's flagship carrier and one of the region's largest airlines in revenue and carrying capacity. The company's hub is actually in Changi Airport and provides regional and cross-continental passenger and cargo services that transit in, through and out of Singapore. They've actually got two brands. They've got the premium carrier, which is um, SIA, and then they've got their low-cost regional carrier, Scoot. Um, Albert, what interested you about Singapore Airlines? Good overview, Dan. Um, you know, I, to be honest, I feel probably a bit apathetic about Singapore. You know, while I, I think, you know, uh, and we discussed this before we started recording, you know, I think it's a well-run business, even when you factor in what's been happening with the pandemic. It's nothing too exciting that really jumps at me. Although something that um, I did kind of find particularly interesting is trying to assess market share for an airline. So it's a pretty weird one to think about whether you do it like by revenue, by passengers, by like destinations that they service. But a really interesting one for me was for uh, all the passengers at Changi Airport, Singapore Airlines and their subsidiary Scoot carry more than half the passengers who transit through that airport. So I think that's a good indication of their market size and penetration is that you know more than one in two or at least one in two passengers are flying on a Singapore Airlines flight at Changi Airport. Yeah, and then they have sort of massive passenger numbers. 3,400,000 passengers carried uh, for the last financial year, which is, is down based on their pre-COVID numbers. Um, a passenger aircraft operating fleet of 120 
aircrafts. That's just their Singapore Airlines business. And then you add on Scoot, which is about half a million passengers and 50 aircrafts. So, you know, they're, they're sizable airlines that they're, they're servicing millions and millions of consumers every year. And that's projected to obviously rise with COVID. And maybe that's a place to sort of start, Albert, is if we put a, a line down the sand and say pre-COVID, post-COVID, how are things looking? Uh, it's, it's a really interesting picture because from my perspective before doing this deep dive, I thought things were pretty much getting back to normal, you know, life as, as usual. But uh, it's, it's actually still, you know, really trying to ramp up to those pre-COVID levels. Um, passenger traffic in North America and Latin America is, you know, still about 10 to 15% below the levels pre-COVID. Asia Pacific, it's a lot worse because China hasn't opened up and some of the other jurisdictions haven't opened up. So there's still really like this this want to get to pre-COVID levels, and that's obviously really impacting these businesses. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I'll throw some stats here out for you, Dan. So uh, pre-COVID, say FY 2019, FY 19, uh, Singapore Airlines was about 85% utilized. So that means across their cargo business uh, and their passenger business, and both of which we should talk about. But just giving some high-level stats, uh, they were 85% utilized. So that means you know, of the, all the available spots for either passengers or cargo, you know, 85% of that was taken up. Now they're at about 50, 56% for the latest quarter um, utilized across the entire business. And then, you know, over the financial year, they're about 35% utilized. So, you know, at the start of the financial year, they're about 25% utilized towards the end. They started to pick up as things opened up. But in Q1, this is like the most telling stat. In Q1, FY20, so this is March 2020, they were 15, 16% utilized on their business and they were only 3.8% utilized on their passenger business. So that means for like every 100 seats, only four passengers were taking up those seats, which is like a crazy amount. Like that's actually like not crazy amount as in like heaps, but like unbelievable that you've got that many empty seats. Yeah, I mean, one of the destinations which has been closed off is, is sort of Hong Kong, which is a really typical business class destination for a lot of business people. You know, they recorded about 120,000 visitors uh, so far this year, which is less than what they would get in a day pre-COVID. Like pre-COVID, they were doing something like 4 million plus uh, every year. And now that's just been dramatically reduced it's not just COVID that's reducing travel. We should obviously shout out the war in Ukraine. Um, that's really restricting Russia, which surprised me is, is actually one of the world's biggest spenders on outbound travel. You know, they're ahead of countries like Japan, Italy, and even us here in Australia in terms of the amount that they're traveling overseas into other jurisdictions. So all of that's really depressing the market for airlines. Um what do you want to hit next, Albert, after sort of passengers? What do you want to dive into? Yeah, let's quickly just talk about what these two segments of the business are before we start kind of uh, going too deep into the business. So, Singapore yep. Airlines, and when we talk about Singapore, I presume we're just going to lump Scoot in as well, which is one yep. of their low-cost subsidiaries, kind of operates two key segments of their business. And they've got like a few kind of rats and mice stuff, but we probably won't talk about it. The first segment is probably what everyone's going to be familiar with. It's their passenger side of the business. So, that, that is transporting people from A to B uh, and Singapore operates at the moment in about 
uh, 69 destinations at Singapore Airlines and then Scoot is about 43 destinations. Obviously, overlap between the two. Um, and, and what they do is they, they charge people per ticket. So, if you've ever flown an airline, you buy a ticket. Singapore Airlines makes, uh, you know, ticket fees and revenue through that, either selling directly to passengers or, or selling via agencies like a travel agent, et cetera, Expedia, you know, booking, you know, those online agencies who, who then on-sell tickets to passengers. And then they've got the cargo side of the business where they've partnered with different um, delivery and logistics businesses such as DHL and they transport large amounts of cargo and often it is, you know, retail cargo of things, people shipping or online shopping from one country to the other. So that's, you know, it's really, really easy to think about this business. Two sides, they transport people and they transport stuff. A great, great summary, Albert. And yeah, as you can imagine, that there's somewhat, during COVID, there's been somewhat of a, a hedge across those with passengers not being able to travel. But, you know, I sort of picked up on the stats that about 30% more deliveries occurring in that period of people obviously in lockdown trying to get their goods, shopping much more on these e-commerce sites and platforms which have been booming over this period, which has led to sort of record revenue for airlines through their air cargo businesses. So Singapore Airlines, their cargo flow and revenue reached a record of $4.3 billion for last financial year, which really helped them weather the storm of uh, their slowdown in passengers, uh, slowdown in passenger business. But, you know, there's, there's still a way for them to pick up. Uh, obviously, the freight that has their own standalone um, aircrafts, which fly as well. But usually for passenger trips, you'd have the belly there available for freight as well. And with so little demand for passenger flights, you end up having a lot of those um, aircrafts grounded as well. And ideally, if they're in circulation, if they're flying too, you can actually pack more cargo in alongside your cargo-specific fleet too. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because they don't talk about the utilizations of their planes in the annual report for cargo versus passengers when, you know, they're not being utilized completely for passenger. But you can see that there's been a major uptick in cargo uh, revenue. So, pre-COVID, and this is, again, really telling about the impact that COVID has had on the airline business. Pre-COVID, uh, their revenue was about 16.3 bill. About 80% of that was passenger revenue, so revenue from selling tickets. About 16% well, was cargo and the rest of it was kind of misc things like, you know, them selling services, their, their loyalty program, etc. And then now FY22, making about 7.6 bill, so, you know, more than half what they were doing pre-COVID. Uh, they were doing um, 37% of their revenue was passenger revenue, so incredible drop from 80% pre-COVID. And then 56% was cargo. So you can really see how they've really over-indexed their business now into cargo. And this, this highlights one of the reasons I was interested in looking at Singapore Airlines. It's, it's when you look at these sorts of figures that you can start to understand what might be affecting other businesses. A key example would be e-commerce. Like in a world where um, air, crate, air freight was much more readily available during COVID and that was the airline's priority. It was their major breadwinner, major source of revenue. As that starts to flip back to being more consumer-centric, you know, I could expect there to be 
issues, increased pricing, etc., on some of that aircraft delivery. Um, there's obviously other factors that affect uh, delivery costs. I think last year we saw you know that big congestion of of sea freight um, over around near Egypt at a sort of critical choke point that increased the need for carriers using aircrafts to to sell goods or to transmit goods across to different countries and now as that sort of closes off you know it's interesting to see how these things will normalize in a post-covid world yeah i think you know a really interesting thing and i really appreciate about singapore airlines and you know airline businesses generally is that this is a really metrics driven business and they're always about kind of kind of just kind of squeeze utilization. So how many more passengers can they fit in? How many more cargo can they fit in? And so I'm going to compare some some numbers here. And so pre-COVID, they were making about uh, let's have a look, ten cents per customer per passenger. Sorry, I'll, I'll be very specific. Ten cents per passenger per kilometer. And so that that's a, a metric that's standard across any transport business. It's called passenger yield. It's how much money you're generating per passenger, per, you know, like distance you carry them. That's 10 cents. And right now they're doing 13 cents. So, you know, obviously airlines are still very competitive, but a few have died off so they can kind of increase pricing a bit. That probably explains the difference pre-COVID and post-COVID. But their cargo business is a a lot more attractive. Pre-COVID they're doing 31 cents uh, per kiloton uh, moved. And then now they're doing about, uh, 73 cents. So you can really see that even pre-COVID, the cargo part of their business was just more attractive. There probably just wasn't the impetus and push to invest in that part of the business because the passenger side was going so well. Yeah, that's that's a really great stat because it shows that my expectation would be as sort of e-commerce sites start to normalize, etc., I expect that cost to be passed on to customers. You know, I expect that my delivery fees on my goods that are coming from Singapore, actually my Nike shoes, Albert, that you, you saw the other day, they just came in uh, via Singapore. You know, I'd expect the delivery costs for these to really start hurting some of these consumer businesses and whether or not, you know, free delivery as a standard will now start to be reduced and you're, you're expected as a customer to sort of pick up the tab on that. And there's other factors which go into that, the rising cost of fuel. So fuel per barrels are now something like uh, 170 US dollars per barrel. Um, basically, once I uh, saw a sort of stat for Qantas, which they're looking at, for every $4 above the 120 a barrel mark, airlines are essentially sort of need to raise their prices on their tickets by a further 1%. So you can really see like there is this correlation between fuel prices, ticket prices, and in the context of air freight, you know, cost of delivery as well. Yeah, it's pretty crazy how metrics driven this business is because like similarly, you know, Singapore Airline talk about what happens if utilization, so like number of uh, passengers, you know, seats that are full increases by one percentage point, how much revenue that means. For every one percentage point increase, they're going up by like $79 million in revenue. So that really shows that this is a business that's all about trying to get people on seats or cargo in halls. Yeah, and I remember that uh, when we one of our first episodes, Albert, was looking at Sydney Airport and it was a similar sort of metrics-driven business. Ultimately, the, the main factor on that business doing well was how many passengers were going through its doors, which fed into the fees that they could collect from the airlines 
and also the revenue they generate through consumer spending in the many shops inside those airports. Yeah, let's let's get a bit focused here, Dan, and go back to your original comment around trying to understand how the world's recovered. You know, what are the things that you're drawing from about Singapore Airlines that leads you to believe whether the world is recovering or not recovering? So one of the interesting uh, dualities is the difference between East and West Airlines. Um, so I mentioned sort of earlier on that North America and Latin America are sitting about 10 to 15% below their pre-COVID um, travel rates or occupancy rates, whereas Asia-Pacific, Africa, Middle East, they're all sort of lagging behind. And that's really, really interesting to me because you'd expect international travel to have some sort of um, diversification where they'd all sort of be coming back to life at similar sort of times. And as I unpack that, you start to see some really uh, influential uh, drivers of the shift back to normalcy, one of them being opening up. We mentioned Hong Kong, China being much, much more closed. But another factor is the the push from uh, leisure travelers, tourists, really driving the recovery for the United States, for Latin America, and that just not happening to the same extent with China, with Hong Kong and all their travelers staying back in home, but that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. You know, all that means is it's going to be delayed. And it's funny because when you look at the um, share prices of all of these airlines across the world, the ones that are actually doing successful year to date are the Asian airlines, Cathay Pacific, Japan Airlines, Singapore Air. Uh, meanwhile, like the American counterparts, Delta, American Air, they're all sort of trending backwards for year to date. So th- those are some like trend lines, which I've just been curious to sort of unpack and understand uh, through the lens of, of Singapore Airlines. Yeah, and, and that kind of fits in into how Singapore Airlines is like passenger split. So they, they track different passenger segments. They call it like passenger routes. So that's, you know, whether it's Singapore to a particular destination or that destination, like such as like Los Angeles, America, Australia, et cetera, back to Singapore. And so the majority of their passenger segments by, you know, passenger numbers is in East Asia. 37% of their passengers are from East Asia. 20% are from Europe or traveling to Europe or back. 17% West Asia, Africa, 16% Southwest Pacific, and then 12% Americas. But it's funny that, you know, even though East Asia is their um, biggest passenger segment by the number of passengers, they're, they're actually the smallest by load factor, so utilization. They're about 22% utilized. That means, you know, for every seat, uh, one in five seats utilized. So there's one in five seats being taken up by someone. But America's is their smallest passenger segment by number of passengers they move, and that's 43% utilized. So what that's telling me is like they're flying much fewer times to America. Uh, but they're filling them up, whereas Asia obviously scoots a big part of this as well, is that they're just flying too many times. And th- that to me is like a, a concern is you're flying too many times to particular destinations, but you're not filling up these flights. Yeah, and it's a, a curious question because you have to sort of wonder whether, you know, what comes first, is it the supply or the demand? You know, if they don't have these flights available for people to see and potentially buy tickets, uh, is that going to depress the sort of recovery of people wanting to get back out there and, and travel. You know, before COVID, corporate spending for airlines accounts for 
for about 30% of their revenues and it generally generated a higher proportion of profits. Um, that's quite easy to work out because you get more profit out of a business class or a first class seat than your, your economy. Um, it's that lag which has, has really, I think, hurt some of these airlines coming back. Um, McKinsey put out some great reporting basically saying that the recovery after 9-11, if you take that as an analogous situation, the recovery for business travel really lagged behind uh, leisure travel by one to two years. And at the moment, you would expect that following COVID, that lag might continue even longer or might even be indefinite as businesses are more comfortable with um, Zoom, with video conferencing, and essentially getting around the need to travel people out across the ocean over to other countries to do business deals. Yeah, I'm not I'm not even sure if um, 9-11 is a comparable scenario because that's like a very American-centric part of the the world and the worldview where, you know, if we're looking at Singapore Airlines or looking at airlines generally, like, you know, flying to America is a particular slice of that. But for Singapore Airlines, that's, you know, 12% of their business. Uh, and so it's not that comparable. The other thing that's like not really comparable is like a global pandemic that grounds all <laughs> airlines versus, I'm not saying that it's not, it was a horrific event that happened, but trying to talk about, oh, let's use this as an analogy. Obviously, there's not really nothing else you can use. So that's the best comp. But, you know, it's a completely different scenario. And I think you're right, Dan. Like, I don't know whether business travel is going to continue in the same way uh, as it used to because people now are comfortable having meetings online. You know, people are very conscious about cost pressures on their business and stripping out travel costs is a really easy one when you know that you can do it without traveling. So just high level up, if we take a step back and we talk in the, the language which I love, which is, you know, headwinds, tailwinds, which is a great, you know, pun for, for this week's episode. But, but do you think airlines in general have more of a tailwind or a headwind going into the future? You know, project out 10 years, you know, when you compare it to other businesses we look at, is this one which we see the future is bright, there's a lot of tailwinds behind it that would drive it forward or do we see it as one which is going to stagnate, potentially get disrupted and, and have a lot of issues behind it? Uh, I think, you know, airlines are probably going to continue to pick up. I think the recovery is going to be very slow. I don't think that opinion is is particularly, um, you know, different to what the consensus is. I think that is the consensus around airlines and you can start to see it. You know, more people traveling anecdotally, you know, routes are opening up, countries opening up. And so, um, barring any major changes to... Uh, the coronavirus and, 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 you know, new variants and things like that. Like, I think there is still going to be uh, a ramp up in passenger capacity and cargo capacity, probably even more so on the cargo side. Um, but I just think that it's going to be much slower than people anticipate. So, one of the interesting things that I pulled out is, you know, before the pandemic, Airlines spent roughly 5% of their revenue on, on IT, you know, not Singapore airline specific, but just sort of generally across the sector. And this is relatively low when you think about in other sectors what they're doing. By comparison, retail spends about 6% on average on IT, financial services 10%. And you know, if we looked at some of you know, the companies that we usually look at, Albert, I'm sure that would be much, much higher. And so when you're looking at that kind of investment, it does feel like a business which, if it wasn't for you know the really high 
costs of purchasing, maintaining, operating aircrafts and all the regulations around it, it feels like there might be room for disruption there because it just seems like the industry is very much the same. Like if you go back 10, 15, 20 years, it's really the same model. It's the same way of doing business. And, you know, there's not too many of those sectors which are immune from disruption, which would affect the incumbents most. Yeah. Uh, Maybe be specific around what you mean by disruption. Well, so for me, when I'm thinking about disruption, is like, is there another way for us to get the same experience of traveling? One of which would obviously be uh, augmented or virtual reality. Um, That would be something which, if we're just thinking about what would get people away from travel and take away some of that spend, if augmented and virtual reality got to that level where literally people would spend their money on that experience rather than going overseas, taking an airplane flight, that to me is like an interesting thought bubble as to like, you know, is is that something that's plausible? If so, is that a headwind for the industry? I'm thinking out loud, but like I don't think uh, anything really is going to replace the thrill, the experience of going overseas, experiencing different cultures, all the vibrancy that that entails. But it's just like I'm trying to think of things which might be obstacles for airlines in the future. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you, I mean, they're they're two separate things to me. Like to me, the job of the airline is to transport people from A to B, and I think that's only going to increase in popularity as we become more globalized as a world. I don't see, you know, there is waves of nationalism coming on macro, but I don't see that us becoming less globalized. So the job that airlines do, I think, is only going to ramp up and you can kind of see it in the data how they've gone from, you know, 4% passenger utilization to, you know, close to 50% in the latest quarter. I think the the key for Singapore, and this goes for any other airline, is that they're just in a business with incredibly high barriers to entry and the unit economics of a business like this doesn't really stack up until you get to scale. And so, because of that, I don't think they're really going to be disrupted from another entrant coming in. But if there is a disruption, I think you're right. It's it's about replicating the experience of being in another destination without being in that destination. Another sort of form of disruption, you know, I think the consumer experience might be fairly similar, but the, the changes on the airlines could be quite drastic, would be if, if we say there's lower travel of, of business people, you know, that really shrinks and now you're prioritizing the leisure travelers, the the tourists, you know, that could bode changes towards the type of aircrafts that they're using. You know, traditionally the most effective aircrafts for business people were the sort of between hubs, smaller city transport, um, and then you'd be using those smaller aircrafts for a longer period of time because there's just a, a higher yield. There's sort of this economics favoring um these aircrafts which are traveling more frequently. So, you know, multiple flights to cities a day, that sort of thing. But if you've got uh, more leisure travelers who are less time sensitive, uh, but much more cost sensitive, airlines might actually be incentivized to use larger aircrafts and fly them at a lower frequency. And so that might be a change that you see. And some airlines might pick this up and then you'll start to notice that your um, options as a consumer to pick flight times might be only one time a day, two times a day, and you have much, much bigger flights. 
um, that might be sort of a disruption that you see as as airlines change their business models uh, to be more economical based on the demand that's coming through. Yeah, I think also the key is like the length of flight. I think to me, passengers, what you're optimizing for isn't necessarily the like, you know, size of the ship because people don't really care about that. Airlines care about the size of the ship because it means you can fit more passengers in. What passengers care about is like the customer experience of being on a flight. And for long haul flights, especially like for us flying from Australia where it takes forever to get anywhere, like passengers are really optimizing for what is the shortest flight I can take to get me to my destination based on the cost of that flight. And that also then comes into like fuel pricing, airline pricing, uh, and like a whole nother can of worms. But I think as, you know, companies like Singapore Airlines invest in, you know, newer and higher quality planes, you know, they've got a few like the, the Airbus, you know, A350, you know, they've got a few A380s, you know, they're investing in other things that Qantas is investing in, you know, they're their new Boeings and the new Airbuses that will take them incredibly long haul Perth to London. Like, I think it's about optimizing for, can you get the lowest flight time for a passenger? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I've seen some data which suggests um, that the, the flight time might not actually be the, the dominant factor for leisure travel. It's actually, um, well, it's it it's it's price, and what that means is it's it's almost the same in that usually the cheaper flights are the ones where you know you're transiting in and out of a, a stopover, you got a layover somewhere that makes it, it cheaper, and you know it's more often that those consumers who are price sensitive, rather than taking the direct flight, which as you say, Albert, let's say is, is twenty hours. You know, they're breaking it up into two, 12, 13-hour flights or something like that. Um, and so you're, you're right in one sense that it's a shorter hit all in one go, but they're actually more willing to take a, you know, a longer time getting to their destination overall because they're being price sensitive about it. One of the things you just touched on there, which I think is important in the context of Singapore Airlines, you mentioned at the top you think they're really well-run business. Totally agree. And one of the indicators of that is how forward-looking they are with their fleet. You know, one of the biggest questions for airlines is when do they upgrade their fleet? When do they buy new aircrafts? That decision alone is about 10 to 15% of an airline's cost base is just like, you know, the aircrafts that they're going to be utilizing. Singapore Airlines has one of the youngest fleets in the industry average age of about six years and three months old. Compare that to Qantas for many of our Australian listeners. The average age of the Qantas fleet is 14.7 years. It's almost twice, or it is over twice the age on average in the Singapore fleet. American Airlines, 12.3 years. That's got a whole host of uh, consequences to it. Albert, you mentioned uh, customer experience experience on you know we've gotten on some of those older Qantas airplanes it feels really tired the seats feel really old the amenities aren't as good um, that's one factor and then also just costs operational costs you're obviously paying more for repairs and and top up maintenance uh, they're also less fuel efficient so all of these sort of things go into you're sacrificing the or rather you're gaining in the short term because you're not having to fork out so much capital to buy a new aircraft 
but over the long run, you really rack up costs. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Like, uh, you know, the reason why I think I don't think I've said is I think this is a well-run business, but probably not in what I'm interested in in terms of like investing or companies is that they're just too uh, cash heavy as a business. And this is why they're unprofitable is that they just like outlay so much cash just to run this business. You know, they've got their hubs, their maintenance, you know, all their offices, you know, they've got all these like uh, foot of, of, uh, of office space that they need to maintain to maintain their presence in the different cities. And then you've got to layer on all the aircraft that they lease. And so, you know, they're, they're spending out like close to, to three bill, three and a half bill year on year just to keep running this business, paying off aircraft that they lease, you know, looking at new aircraft, engines that they lease, you have spare engines. Uh, and then you've got to like the fuel, the fuel hedging that they go to. Like this is a business that while they are doing what they can to, to have, you know, newer models of aircraft, it's just very capital intensive. All right, Albert, before we start wrapping up, any last thing you wanted to hit? Look, I think this this is actually a really interesting business from like a metrics perspective when you have to, and we haven't really gone that deep into what this business does from from metrics that they do well. But I think it's worth pointing out that they are cash flow positive, so you can't really just look at the profitability number and say that this business isn't doing well because a lot of the profitability or unprofitability in this case is driven by depreciation. And, you know, for everyone out there, accounting nerds, not, not, <laughs> depreciation isn't isn't cash, so it's not really something you need to, to you need to look at and be like, oh, this business is unprofitable because they are cash flow positive and they maintain they manage their business really well in that they did take out a lot of debt, but they took it at low interest rates. Uh, and they, you know, airlines all take advanced payments, so they've just got a lot of money to reinvest back into the business. So they can use prepayments from their passengers to help buy new planes, equipment, upgrades, etc. So when you've got a high volume of passengers, it means you can reinvest that cash that the passengers have given you back into providing a really great service in terms of new aircraft. And that's probably why Qantas hasn't been able to do that at the same rate because they're just not shifting as many passengers as Singapore Airlines is. Yeah, that's a, a fantastic point. Uh, when you look at the business structure of an airline, they're taking prepayments you know, potentially years out in advance where people are buying tickets for a holiday a year from now plus. They're locking in the dates. They're buying um, those flights. And then the airline gets you know, $5,000, however much, you know, just to play with until that cost eventually eventuates. So that's a really good thing to point out. One of the last things I wanted to sort of hit on Albert in, in a relatively quick fire way, because I know, you know, we want to talk about Asia tech. So I thought let's dive into some of the tech adjacencies to airlines, to the airline travel business, which might see a bit of an, an uptick. I pointed out the potential for traveling augmented reality, virtual reality, as a replacement to the experience of traveling, you can also imagine, you know, I remember when I first traveled, Albert, the thing I cared about most was whether or not they had video games on the plane, whether they had a screen in the back of the seat. Now you can ramp that up to imagine if you had augmented reality or something else which you could play with while on the plane to make that experience 
in a cramped, air-conditioned, noisy environment, you know, just so much better. So that is one thing when you're looking at the passenger experience. Uh, Elon Musk just sort of came out with a new robot. That's uh, a really interesting segment for airlines in terms of automating a lot of their staff. You know, so much of what the staff do, not just on the airplane, but actually in the airport terminals, etc., with luggage. You know, robots is a really good way to systemize that, make it more economical, make it cheaper, and make it more effective. And then the last one, which um, I'll sort of highlight, is biometrics and sort of enabling travel with biometrics. Thinking about ways in which travel can be disrupted, Albert, probably the most archaic thing is that we walk around, queue up in long segments, and then hand over a paper ticket, a paper passport, uh, get these things scanned, etc. At some point, you'd think there would be biometric scanning where you know you can just sort of keep walking and it'll scan your face, it'll match it to an, an, a passport ID somewhere and you can you know, co- sort of keep going seamlessly. So like these sorts of things will enable travel, will make it more seamless, will make a better passenger experience and then will create more incentive for people to go on travels as well. So I think those are points I'll just highlight. Yeah, it's a great call out. Like you can you know, use technology to really shift all of this cost base. Like staff make up their second biggest cost structure, which is about 18% of total cost. And that's just like, you know, or think about all the staff that you interact with when you're trying to get through a plane or for, from, you know, entering the airport to, to leaving the airport that you've arrived in. Like you've got people at the gate, you've got people who check all your tickets, you know, you've got people who do baggage, you've got the flight attendants, like a lot of that stuff can be automated. And then there's all the people in the background, like the people who are doing baggage and, and loading that onto a plane, people who are driving the pilots onto the aircraft. Like there's so much of, of this business that could be augmented with technology. And because you can't really ground or stop, you know, airlines, although they did, um, you know, for a long period of time to uh, mobilize and and really augment it internally. They just haven't had the, um, yeah, the internal need to do that. And hopefully they will soon. Okay, Albert, verdict. Yeah, I think it's a well-run business. I think it shows in the metrics. And if anyone's curious, you can go have a look. But I just look at this is a cash flow positive airline in COVID because the pandemic is still going on. And the fact that you can be cash flow positive and the unit economics of this business stack up is a big tick for me. I feel like uh, doing this pod with you, Albert, I'm getting more and more influenced. It's, you know, I think there was a time where if we did this business, I would have been really, really excited. But now after like when you follow it up behind some of the companies we've looked at, you know, the Alibabas, the Samsungs, just like it, it, it just sort of pales in comparison when we, <laughs> it's a lot of hard work to run this business. And that's not to say that the other businesses aren't hard work, but the the payoff just seems less like for every hour of work you put into this business, you're getting, you know, a 2x payoff. Whereas it feels like some of these other businesses we've looked at, you know, the payoff is just so much higher with the work than, and the effort they put into it. And that's sort of a very crude, I think, um, way of describing it. But it just to me, this, this business seems definitively uh, unsexy after some of the other ones we've looked at. Yeah, I mean... Yes, I agree. I agree. And, you know, if nothing else, like this is a good business to look at because, you know, quantitatively thinking about metrics in this 
capacity helps you then think about what are the similar types of metrics that aren't necessarily like um, that visible to other like software businesses. Like people don't think about, you know, utilization metrics when it comes to software. And, but there is like utilization that you can use when you, when you think about companies like Amazon, et cetera, because those are still relevant. Okay, Albert, let's finish up there. Thank you for listening to the Fresh Capital Podcast, a podcast about companies and investing told in a refreshingly simple way. We'll catch you again next week. See ya. Thank you for listening to another episode of Fresh Capital. Every week, we provide a refreshingly simple way to learn how companies operate and how investing works. Just a reminder, all information contained in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, financial, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Fresh Capital are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Any opinions expressed in the show are not recommendations or advice. Please consult a licensed financial professional before you jump in. As always, we look forward to seeing you next week. See ya.